All right. Okay, so take your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter, and while you're turning there, we'll uh, just do a brief review. Last week, we, uh, the message was love well. And we talked about the great challenge of the New Testament is not greater structure, greater organization, all those things. It was that we'd actually learn how to love each other. And if any of you tried to do that well, you know how hard it is, right? And you know you need to pray because it starts to become impossible. And so um, that was the whole thing. And again, at Northview, I want to underline what Zach said. You know, we, our whole theme here is don't do life alone. Right? Be, have a posse, have a tribe, have a group, have somebody that you can share life with because the Christian life comes alive when you're sitting around a group and you share your hurts or you share your successes or your concerns and you've got people who can pray for you. And it comes alive in a way that never happens if you're just out there by yourself. Also, in terms of warfare, it's just a lot easier to get picked off. It's a lot easier to get destroyed in your faith. Uh, than if you're in a group together. So our whole thing is don't do life alone. Join a community group and want to encourage you on that. And that was the message from last week. This week we said that it was supposed to be love well and then assess well. And we, I said we'd get to the assess part this week. And in this, Peter does a really cool thing with this little verse up here. It reads like this. It says, For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So at the end of this chapter, what Peter, I think, is trying to do is set an edge for his people. He's trying to get them to weigh what he's just said in the chapter against the things that they are bumping up against and battling with in, in life here. And... Um, they're trying to make real choices. Remember, we, we're talking, uh, Peter is talking to a group of what he calls exalted exiles. And, but they have been uprooted, displaced. Uh, they have all the same battles that refugees have. And so uh, he's wanting them to make real life choices off of what he has been exhorting them to do. And um, they are to measure what they are up against against the promises that have been made to them by God. Often when you're under fire, it's hard to remember what God promised, isn't it? That's one reason why you've got to stay in the Word, right? But uh, they, they were having the same battle we have on a day-in, day-out basis. And, and Peter is placing the eternalness. I said in the other two uh, services, I don't know if eternalness is a word, but if it isn't, I just coined it, all right? Eternalness, you English majors, check it out for me. Okay? But what that means is the staying power, the staying power of what's been done for them in Christ against the price tag of what it's cost them to follow Christ. Let me say that again. It, the eternalness, it's the staying power of what has been done for them in Christ against the price tag of what it's cost them to follow Christ. And we, we do that, don't we? We get walking with the Lord and then we start going, wow, is this really what I thought it was going to be? And this is way tougher than I thought it was going to be. And my goodness, uh, where's God helping me in this? This seems like I'm out here by myself. And, and they were battling that. And so that's what Peter was talking to them about. And what Peter's doing is he's asking them to value above all else the preciousness of Christ's sacrifice for them Versus the things that the world has to offer, which he called feudal ways. Remember, feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. So 
Peter's encouraging them to value the preciousness of Christ's sacrifice for them. And I want to suggest this morning that since this book has been passed down to us as well, it's not just for them, but it's also uh, for us. We're being asked by the Holy Spirit in the same way to consider these things as well. In other words, the things that are being thrown at us in this world versus the things that has God has promised about eternity. And the last phrase here, this last verse that you see up on the screen, is really a classic verse. And it's, it's not just classic because it's quoted out of Isaiah, although Isaiah is pretty classic. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus quoted the book of Isaiah more than any other book uh, of the Old Testament. And if you read the New Testament and look at all the places where the book of Isaiah is quoted, it tells you that Isaiah was kind of a pivotal cornerstone book out of the Old Testament. And, and so Peter's using it. But this phrase is classic because it's reiterating one of the all-time great themes of Scripture. If you read the Bible, you, you run into this all over the place. You can't read very far uh, till you run into it. And basically it's this. God's things last, man's things fade. That's the whole message. God's things last, man's things fade. It's said in other ways as well. God's word is eternal. Man's word is like withering grass. That's what Peter's got up here. God's reign is forever. Man's reign is like the glory of a flower. It fades quickly. I went out and uh, I thought I'd illustrate this with real flowers. Now, I was supposed to buy these three days ago so that they'd be limping over and hanging limp, but I forgot to buy them. And, uh, and so I bought them last night at 10.30. And the reason I bought them at 10.30 is Pam and I and the Gambers went to the Wren Collection concert at Gold Creek and it was a fabulous concert, just really good thing. And uh, we, we had a wonderful time there. And so I ran to the store late and got these. And then I got here this morning and I felt sorry for the flowers because the ends were drying up, on the, right? And I thought, oh, the poor thing. So I got a scissors and cut them and I put them in water. Right? So I'm, I have a heart for flowers here. And, uh, but even in doing that, and even if I put that magic junk in there that keeps them going, how long do flowers actually last? These are daffodils, right, John? Right? Yeah, okay. Daffodils. Shows you how much I know about flowers. Okay. But even if I put them in there and put the magic junk in there that keeps them forever, which I didn't, this is just tap water, so they'll probably croak. But how long do flowers actually last? You know, flowers are a big part of the Northwest. We get this illustration because we're coming up on one of my all-time favorite parts of the year, and that's when the rhododendrons bust out. Okay? And the Northwest just comes alive with flowers in the springtime. And I wait every year. Uh, one of my all-time favorite things since moving to Seattle is watching the roadies start popping out. And, man, they come out in all the kinds of colors, luxuriant reds and flaming pinks and that deep, rich, royal purple one that comes out. And like, wow, I just love it. But my problem is they don't last long, right? They kind of just here and then they drop off. And you're like, ah, oh, that was so short. And that's what Scripture is saying is a lot of man's things are like that. I was looking on the internet this week. It's the Oscars this week, right? And I, didn't, I don't watch it, but I was on the computer and they had the, you know, they have the red carpet people, right? All the people in their beautiful gowns show up. And then they had 
the gorgeous couples of the Oscars. And one of the couples was Russell Wilson and his girlfriend, Ciara, right? And that's a fairly good-looking couple. And uh, I didn't click on the thing to see all the other couples were, but I sat there on my screen, and the question occurred to me, because I was doing this, I thought, how many couples like this have I seen on the screen before? How many... These are the great, beautiful couples of the... Some of us can go back to the Liz Taylor, Richard Burton era, right? When they were the hot couple. And and some of us, you know, and think about yourself. How many it couples have you seen that were the beautiful couple and they were plastered all over the place as the great, wonderful, lasting thing? And how long do they last? Right? How long do those couples last? And, And they just keep turning over and churning because it all fades so quickly. Matter of fact, with a beautiful woman, when she begins to lose her beauty, what do we say? The bloom has gone off the rose. Right? It's a flower illustration. Because what are we saying? It doesn't last very long. It goes pretty quickly. And that's what Peter is, is trying to point out here. Um, Peter's talking about, though, a different kind of beauty. He's talking about man's glory. He's talking about the, the glory that man can produce. And uh, he's talking about his conquests, his kingdoms, his dominance, the generations in the histories. And he's saying they're like a flower compared to eternity. And they go pretty quickly. The map of the world that I grew up with in grade school is not the same map as the present right now. We've seen kingdoms rise and fall just in my short lifetime. All right? And, and, and the names are different and the borders are different and some don't even exist anymore. And that's what Peter's trying to make the connection here. So what he's saying is in spite of everything you see going on around you, even today, he's exhorting fellow believers to choose God and stay anchored in our faith, to set our hope firmly on the kingdom that will never fade away. Now when he's doing this, he's writing to Jewish Christians. So they would have got this uh, connection very quickly uh, of the use of Isaiah, and it would not be lost on them. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says that this phrase that you see up on the screen behind me here, I was pointing to the old screens, they're not there. They disappeared. Wow, two weeks in, I'm still messed up. All right, here we go. It says um, that this, the Expositor's Bible Commentary says that this phrase comes from what is known as the Book of Comfort in Isaiah. It's in Isaiah chapter 40. So if you've got your Bibles, turned there, right? Or your phone, whatever you use, your electronic device. And turn to Isaiah 40. And the point I want to point out is that just like Peter was writing to exiles, Isaiah himself was writing to an exiled people. The deportations had begun to take place and people were already taken exile into Babylon. Daniel would have been one of them. All right. And Isaiah is writing during this time. And all of Peter's readers would have immediately made the correlation between what Peter was trying to exhort them in and how Isaiah was trying to exhort Israel. In the greatness, the eternalness, the supremacy of God over every other thing in the universe. Right? Look at how Isaiah sets the greatness of God in juxtaposition to the creation. If you uh, go to Isaiah 40 there and and start in verse 12. So the verse we looked at is a little bit before this. But this is Isaiah 40, verse 12. He says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now, if you take your hand, the picture here, 
this is the hollow of your hand. Right? And it says, God takes the waters and measures them in the hollow of his hand. And think about how big some bodies of water are. For example, I grew up in the Midwest next to Lake Michigan. The narrowest point across Lake Michigan is 90 miles. It's 320 miles long. Okay? 90 miles. That's like from here to Chehalis. Right? That's how the narrowest point. Lake Superior, 348 miles across at its widest point. That's like from here to southern Oregon. That is a lot of water. Okay? But that isn't even what it's talking about. That's just the Great Lakes. Okay? It's talking about the oceans. Think of how big the oceans are. And this dude, whoever he is, holds them in the hollow of his hand and measures them. That's not big enough for you? Isaiah goes on and says this, and he's marked off the heavens with a span. We know a lot more about the universe than we do now because of Hubble and all those kind of things zipping out there and you know, taking their photographs and pictures and that kind of stuff. But it says here, he measures the universe by the span of his hand. The span, a span is from the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky. Right? That's a span. It says he measures the universe by the span of his hand. If you're impressed with the universe, think about the guy who built it. That's what Isaiah is saying. It says he enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. We know something about mountains here in the Northwest, right? Many of us have walked them. They've made us puff and, you know, they're pretty high and pretty big and we've had to drive around them or over them and, uh, you know, that's a lot of dirt and a lot of rock, right? And that's just the state of Washington. Think about the mountains of the world, and it says he's measured them and weighed them. He's got a little scale and puts the mountains, you know, here's Everest, and puts some other ones here and measure them. Yeah, okay, that's where they go. We're talking things in proportionate to scale here to impress us, not with what God's created, the creation, but with the guy who created it. It says, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what, can, what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? In other words, where did he get this? Where did God come up with these ideas and this creation? And Wow, who, who taught him? Look what it goes on. It says, who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge or showed him the way of understanding? Where did God get this wisdom? And it's saying God is so far beyond. And because of that then, the next phrase Isaiah uses is this. All right, now then, behold, let's compare him to the nations. When you compare God to the nations, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. That's an old farming term right there, all right? Drop in the bucket, all right? Talking about when you milk cows and they dump the bucket out. Usually when you're done, there's a little drop in the bottom of the bucket, right, Bob Benoit? Drop in the bucket, all right? It's saying when God measures it, the nations are like a drop in the buckets. We're pretty impressed with what we've built as mankind. Our, our cities, right? We've got Seattle and the Space Needle, and we've got Chicago and the Sears Tower, we've got New York, we've got Dubai, and all these things. We look at the nations and the cities of the world and go, man, we're something. Look at what we've built. And God looks right here and says, they are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Just think how much sand there is on the coastlands of the world and he picks them up. Lebanon will not suffice for fuel nor its beast, enough for burnt offering. Uh, you may not understand the context of that, but all the coastal currents of the Mediterranean come up, miss Israel, swing north, and they, they come against Lebanon. 
because the mountains are there, the mountains of Lebanon. And so the Lebanon is very similar to the Pacific Northwest. All the moisture drops right there, and they, as a result, grow huge, big trees. Remember when Solomon was building his temple and all the trees came from Lebanon, cedars uh, cut there? And so they grow forests just like we do. And so here Isaiah is saying, hey, all the forests, all the wood and the mountains of Lebanon, which was just mind-blowing, and all the beasts in the forest wouldn't be enough for even an offering or a sacrifice for him. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Now, does that strike you as weird? Because what it looks like in our day, it looks like the nations are doing everything and they are incredibly powerful and, there's all kind of, and it really looks like the kingdom of God is doing nothing. Right? It seems exactly inverse and flipped. Like the world's really got it going and the world's really got it rocking and Jesus really doesn't have hardly anything going at all. Matter of fact, will we even be able to hang on for another week, right? Kind of attitude. And here God says, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Here's what the Bible's trying to say. What we think is so permanent is really not that permanent. And what looks like not permanent at all is actually eternal. We found that out in a little event called 9-11. Some buildings we thought could never come down came down very quickly. And God says the cities of the world will be reduced to dust and ashes and traces. And the kingdom of God is going to go on forever. Look at verses 18 to 24. It takes on a very Jobian flavor. Remember in the book of Job where... Uh, God's talking to Job at the end and kind of calls him into account. He says, to whom then will you liken God? I wish I had James Earl Jones' voice for that. Right? Just to get that deep rumble in there. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compared to him? An idol? A craftsman cast it, a goldsman overlays it with gold. He cast it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? In those days, you'd get objects and they would put it together and it would represent something. We don't have objects so much anymore. We're now an image-based culture. Right? We, we, we have skilled craftsmen that still make idols. And they're really good at it. But it's based on images now, not actual concrete things like an idol. We have the thing called the internet. We have thing called TV. And we have things called movies that are finely crafted idol machines and idol factories, getting us to believe that everything is real except God. As a matter of fact, you're a goof and a ditz and a dolt if you actually believe God is going to win out on the day. Because God's done, the church is dead, and it's over. You just don't even know you've been killed yet. Right? My answer to that is, well, there's truth to that in the church because we've shot ourselves enough time to, to you know, wipe anything out. We've been really dumb as the church. But here's the thing. You can't kill the Holy Spirit. Church isn't dead. Church isn't going anywhere. The church is actually going to flourish. It actually flourishes under persecution. Right? And so the Bible and Peter and Isaiah are saying, weigh weigh this wisely. Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing 
and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And then going back to this flower illustration here, he says this, Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. doesn't take much to wreck a flower. You ever have really beautiful flowers in your yard, and then your grandkids run through there? Okay. How well do they survive? Right? Flowers can get wiped out pretty quick. You may have been the kid that ran through your grandparents' flowers, right? And then Isaiah says this, all right, if you consider those things, all right, then to whom will you compare me? He's saying this about God, that I should be like him, says the Lord. In other words, who actually matches up in terms of that kind of eternity and that kind of vastness uh, against God? And the answer is nobody does. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He's talking about the universe here, the stars. He says, look at the heavens. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. He says, go out at night, get out of Seattle with all the light pollution, get up in the mountains somewhere and look at the stars. You ever been in the desert and looked at the stars? Spectacular, okay? Spectacular. One of the reasons we aren't in awe of the heavens anymore, we can't see them. Because what we believe is our light is the true light, not the lights that God put in heaven. But he says, if you look, God cast all those... Have you ever looked at the number that they give for some of these? Like they find new galaxies and they say, in that galaxy, there's a billion stars. I'm thinking, a billion stars in one galaxy? And they're finding new galaxies all the time. Like, how many stars are there in the universe? And the Bible says, you're impressed with that? Be impressed with this. God calls each of them by name. Wow. Think of that. I mean, what does he call the Milky Way? It'd be fun to learn their names, wouldn't it? Wonder what he calls the Big Dipper. Wouldn't it be funny if it's the Big Dipper? <laughs> I kind of like that name. That, that works. Okay. Isaiah goes on, if you're tracking, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Remember that at this moment, uh, Israel's on really shaking ground and getting shredded, right? And as in God is, woe is us, God has forgotten us, he's left us, he's dumped us, we've been brought to the desert to die. By the way, if you want to see a good wine, and this carried out further, go to Psalm 73, and in there there's a great wine, not the wine you drink, this is a wah, that kind of wine, right? Go to Psalm 73, and the guy's really wrestling with, you know what? I'm not sure it's worth being a Christian. I'm not sure it's worth following God. I don't think it stacks up because I see everybody else prospering. I see me going through miserable stuff. What do you get out of this anyways? And then it says, if I had talked like that, I would have betrayed your children. Okay? And he's wrestling with that, that whole thing right there. It says, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The Creator, and this is one of the most famous sections of Scripture in the world right here. This is, remember, if you've seen Chariots of Fire, this is the one rolled out when you watch Chariots of Fire. It says, The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Here's the point of that. 
what Isaiah was trying to drill home, i.e., he can and will see us through everything. There's nothing we can go through that is too big for God. There's nothing that shocks him. There's nothing that surprises him. And there's nothing that other people haven't been through before us. Okay? There is nothing that he will and can see you. He can he will and can see us through anything. And Isaiah was trying to point out, point to the supremacy of God, in spite of the seemingly dominance of Babylon and the harsh conditions of their exile. Think if you were an Israelite in that era, and your nation is smashed, your walled cities are gone, it's been stripped. Yes, 150,000 were deported to Babylon. Three and a half million were killed. This is a disaster of epic proportions people you know your family members and if you're in exile you're walking 1500 miles in chains quite a picnic and you come to babylon and god says you see all this it's going to fall ha i don't think so that looks pretty permanent to me and even that you might say well yeah it might fall in 17 gazillion generations after me i'm going to live to be 50 or 60 uh what good is that to me? Right? And what Isaiah is trying to say is you're measuring it wrong. You're not assessing well. You're assessing temporary things against eternal things, and you've got this, the scale all screwed up. You've got to get it weighed the right, the right way. Peter pulls from this theme to undergird his exhortation to his own people. The permanency, the foreverness is used as a counterbalance for the pain, grief, trials, and persecution that come on this level. The idea here, again, what Peter's trying to get them to do, is assess well, weigh with right scales, measure it the way God's saying it. Here's what he's saying in essence. Look, church, I know what you're going through, but weigh it against eternity. It's less than a drop in the bucket. I wanted to kind of give us a picture this morning, so I'm going to... Zach, you back there? Grab your partner and jump up here. Your assistant. I asked them to come and help me this morning. Oh, hi, Austin. Yeah. Here you go. I bought this rope and I, I wanted the rope to stretch from wall to wall, but I was too cheap to buy enough rope. Okay. Oops, here, let me grab this. Got her? You cannot have a knot in eternity. Got it. There we go. All right. So stretching here, now, um, so we got a kind of a saggy eternity, okay? But pretend it's a straight line. And over here, if you can see this, Norm, if you look around Austin, there's a piece of electrical tape right here, all right? Now, if you can't see, if you've got bad eyes like me, you wouldn't be able to see it. But trust me, there's a, right, Cody? There's a piece of electrical tape. My, my man, Cody, says yes, all right? And if you know, electrical tape's about that big, right? It's saying this. This piece of electrical tape right here represents all of human history. Take the whole kit and caboodle all together. It's this right here. Eternity is the rest of the rope. All the way there. But even this isn't that good of an illustration because we could take that rope and extend it down to Thrasher's Corner, right? And it would be a better representation. Or if we got enough rope, we could stretch it all the way to Bellevue. That would be a better representation of eternity. But even that wouldn't be good enough. We could take that rope and stretch it all the way to Southern Cal, right? Maybe to Disneyland, right? And that would be a better uh, 
picture of eternity. But that even wouldn't be adequate. We could take that rope and stretch that rope all the way down to the tip of South America, right? Where Chile and Peru come together down there. And that would be a much bigger picture. But it still wouldn't be adequate for eternity because this thing goes like that forever. And all that God's doing, he says, look, I know. I know that hurts. I know that doesn't work right. But don't give up because he's going to make it. He's got all this to make it right. Every tear is going to be washed away. Justice is going to be done. It's going to work the way it's supposed to. You are going to love what he rolls out. So church, even though you're living in that, keep your eyes on this. Because this is the big thing and this is the eternal thing. That feels like forever. This is forever. There's a big difference between what we feel and what is real. And our feelings lie to us. And so much is saying, oh, it's too hard. God doesn't come through. Yada, yada, yada. And we are, are messing the scales up. Saying that is all of human history, not just your history. This is eternity. All right? Thank you, guys. Give them a hand. My helpful assistance. That's a bad picture, but one that at least gets us thinking about eternity and the scale of it. Paul echoes this exact same theme in Romans 8. If you're turning there, turn to Romans 8. And he's saying uh, in the first part of Romans 8 that the whole creation groans because it's waiting for God to flip the tables and turn it all right and and that the kingdom would be ushered in. And he says, therefore, when you think about that piece of electrical tape on in the end, he says, all the stuff we go through down here are but light and momentary afflictions. And this is where people get really hacked at Paul because they go, he's just a type A alpha dog leader and he has no compassion or sensitive sensitivity whatsoever and I'm going through enormous pain and what kind of jerk is he to insinuate that my pain is just light and momentary affliction? Paul doesn't get it. Stop for a minute. Yes, he does. Okay? We're talking about a man who's been flogged five times. Flogging means they take whips with little balls and and, and jagged pieces of bone stuff, and they whip you 39 times. They could not do 40 because nine times out of 10, when you threw the 40th lash, it would kill the person. So they literally brought you to the point of death and then stopped. Now think about that. Just because they stopped doesn't mean your pain stopped, Right? Think about your back being shredded to ribbons and think about that and think about trying to sleep at night. Think of like trying to just walk around. What would that be like? And it says Paul was whipped like that five different times. Can you imagine the scar tissue? Can you imagine what his back looked like? Can you imagine how that hurt every time that got ripped back open? Can you imagine his kidneys and stuff and the bruising and the beating that that stuff took? Paul totally understood suffering. Matter of fact, I would suggest to you, he probably understood suffering probably more than any other person on the planet. Well, he never had kidney stones, so maybe not as much, but close, right? And what he's saying is, look, look what I've been through, and I understand what you're going through, but it's just momentary. It's nothing compared to eternity. And that's the point they were trying to make. These afflictions are nothing compared to the glory to be revealed. Daniel, we talked about him a second. He himself was a product of the exile of Babylon. 
And he captures the same picture. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and no one can interpret it. And Daniel's brought in. And the dream is of this giant statue. Its head is gold and its chest and arms are of silver. And the waist is of bronze. And then the, the shins and the feet are iron and clay. And it, it's a great statue. And it, it represents the kingdoms of the world. And the head, the, the head was the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar built, which uh, many scholars feel was the greatest kingdom that ever existed on the planet. And then you have the Medo-Persian Empire. Then the bronze was Greece and Alexander the Great. And then, of course, the iron and the clay was the, the empire of Rome. And it says, A stone was cut out of a mountain, not by human hands, and it was flung at the statue. And when it hit the feet of the statue... Here's what it says. It says, Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer on threshing floors. In other words, the wind just picked it up and carried it off. And the wind carried them away. And here's the key phrase. So that not a trace of them could be found. Not pieces, not chunks, not a trace could be found. And it says, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So what looks so permanent and so real right now, this minute, not a trace of it's going to be left. And what looks like absolutely nothing right now, the kingdom of God is going to grow into a great mountain. About this stone, there's a lot of illustrations of, in Scripture. Uh, in another phrase, Jesus uses this uh, depiction. It's called the cornerstone says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And the picture of a cornerstone is on a building and a foundation. This is the key set piece. You set this piece right. Everything else is level. Everything else works. It's all in line. If that piece is crooked or out of whack, the whole building's out of whack and unlevel. And Jesus says, I am that stone. I'm the cornerstone that was rejected. But it was the Lord's doing its marvelous in eyes. This cornerstone is mentioned in Isaiah. It's mentioned in Zechariah. By the way, if you haven't read Zechariah, trippy book. Okay? If you have never read it, just jump in there once and start reading it. Man, you blow your mind. Okay, but Isaiah, Zechariah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, Ephesians, and guess where else we'll run into it? A little book called First Peter. Okay? First Peter uses this. Uh, illustration of the cornerstone. The stone, Jesus, who would strike the empires of the world and become the mountain that would fill the whole earth. Does that look true today? No, it does not. Is that true? Yes, it is. He is the word, Peter says, that this is the good news that was preached to them and it's the good news that preached to us. The word of the Lord and His salvation... Remain forever. And so the word, this word comes down to us today just like it did Israel and just like it did the early church. And what it's saying is the same thing to them as it says to us. Assess well. Measure well. Don't measure everything by down here because down here is an illusion. And it's talking about put all your eggs in Jesus' basket. You know, if you had to say, where's your emotional weight at this point? You know, sometimes when you're standing, right, more weight's on your left leg than your right leg or on your right leg and your left leg. You kind of got one foot doing this kind of thing. Where, where's your weight? 
Is it in the world or is it in the kingdom? Right? I'm not talking about being in church. I'm talking about your heart. I'm talking about your soul. Where is it? Is it in the world or the kingdom? It's saying assess well, measure according to the kingdom. That's why you make choices that look dumb to other people. Because they're eternal choices. They're not living for eternity. They're living for everything they can down here. Right? All of this down here goes bye-bye. Only the stuff that's done for eternity lasts. So the Bible's saying measure your life well. Make choices that count for eternity. Don't give up on God's goal for you. Measure this life in view of the things God has revealed about the span of history versus the span of eternity. And it's saying choose eternity. And in Peter's words, he says this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest that was a great word for Israel because they had gotten away from that. It was a great word for the church Peter's talking to. And I want to suggest it's a great word of hope for us. It is a great word this morning is to get our eyes off of the things down here that so easily entangle us and get our eyes on eternity and make decisions measured that way. Assess well. Stack the cord of your wood towards eternity. Okay? Put your chips in that bucket. Yeah, people are going to laugh at you. Yeah, people are going to call you stupid. Yeah, people are going to call you a prude and all that different stuff. But in the end, the one who measures towards eternity is the one who measured well. And God is behind the ones who believe him by faith that that's the way to go. Isn't that a great word? All right, let's pray together. Father, it is a good word. It's a good word for them. It's a great word for us. And we need that kind of word because it's so easy to be deceived on that level, especially today. So many things um, try to attack you and say your kingdom's not real, you're not real, nothing of that is real, and all of this is what's permanent. This is your life, so make all your choices exactly according to what you deserve right now. And Lord, we know that's a lie. We know that's so into our flesh, and we know that's not picking up our cross. Sometimes we don't pick up our cross because we kind of think ourselves that it isn't real. Would you help us get back to where it's real in our hearts and real and we pick up our cross and do what you've asked us to do, whether it makes sense to other people or not, whether it makes sense to us or not. May you help us be obedient. We seek you for that. May you be blessed by that. And we give that to you in your name. Amen.